thank you so much for today. Uh, God, help me. <laughs> Anoint my words, Father. Let it not be a message just to have a message just for no purpose, God, but convey what you want to convey. Jesus, help me say what you want to say, Jesus. This is about you. This isn't about how good of a message I can make. It's about you, Jesus. So if anything, God, I ask that everyone walks away with something to help them get closer to you, Jesus. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've been on the last few Sundays, if you've been here, we have been on a series, Jesus Over Everything. And Pastor Jacob started us out, and we've been through the book of Colossians, which is a short book, only about four chapters long, and you can read it in one read. You can read it in one sit down, uh, which is nice. I was having a conversation earlier this morning, and those are my favorite books, that I don't have to sit there for five hours to read them. I can sit there in about 30 minutes and read it and get it. And so we've been going through Colossians and talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. What does that mean, the supremacy that Jesus is over everything. So Jacob, Jacob started us out on the supremacy, and then Micah has been talking about, uh, he talked about how we mature, how we mature as Christians. Last week, he talked about prayer and what it looks like to pray. Like, what is biblical prayer? Why do we pray? What's the point of prayer? And so he, we've been talking about that. And today, I'm going to kind of almost go back to the first and just talk about Jesus over everything. What is that? Because it's one of those things that it's three words, not super difficult. Jesus over everything, yeah. Jesus over everything. Jesus over every part of my life. But what does that mean? There are a lot of implications for making Jesus everything. When we say that, what are we saying? What are we getting ourselves into? And so something I was thinking about last night as I was preparing this is whether we acknowledge Jesus is over everything or not. He is over everything. In Colossians, it talks about that he's been given the key to all authority on heaven and on earth. He has it. He has the authority over everything. And whether we submit to him or not, he is, he is the supreme. He is the Lord of this world. And so I think at least in my opinion, it's probably a good idea to submit to the Lord of everything. I would think it would be a pretty good idea. And so I'm going to talk about a little bit of what that means. And so to get us started, I'm going to tell a little story that happened a few weeks ago. Uh, she's not in here. So for those of you who don't know, I teach uh, fifth grade at the fifth grade Bible, not all of fifth grade. I'm not that smart. Fifth grade Bible uh, at the academy. And there's only nine people, only nine kids in the class. And they are, eight of them are girls, so lots of talking. Uh, but they come in, and they're arguing, and they've got, like, their little friend groups. And they're arguing, and I say, hey, what are you guys arguing about? And they said, well, we're arguing, which is better, the American flag or the Christian flag? Which one's better? And I said, hmm, that's interesting that you guys bring this up. That's kind of a question that probably not people... People don't normally think about which, which flag is better. But I went through and I said, which one are you submitted to first? Which one do you fall under first? Are you a Christian first? Or are you American first? And the reason I bring that up is because I love America. And I know a ton of people in here truly, deeply love America. 
and the freedom we have in this country, and it's amazing. I hope we don't take that for granted. However, I saw a little, I saw a little Facebook post or meme or something, and it asked, regardless of who wins, is Jesus still Lord of your life? Regardless if you live in America, or you live in China, or you live in Mexico, or you live in Canada, wherever you go, if you are a Christian, you are a Christian first. You're not Christian first until you enter America, and then you're American first. You're a Christian no matter what. When you submit to Christ, you fall under his kingdom. You are an inhabitant of the kingdom of God before you are a citizen of America, a citizen of Canada. And I think that's important because there's a lot of people, everyone wants to fit into somewhere. Everyone wants to get behind something. Everyone wants to be in a group. It's human nature. It's how God created us. He didn't create us to be lone wolves through our whole life. He created us to be a part of a group, to feel connected to people, to go after something, to be a part of a group that loves us. And everybody wants that. And there's a lot of people who I think, unfortunately, because they're looking for that group and they don't know who Jesus is, or they might have a misrepresentation of him, they enter groups because, yes, they're accepted in these groups, but these groups aren't bringing the kingdom. They're not Jesus. They're not his group. They're not a part of what we've been called to. And so I thought that was important. When Jesus is over everything, we're his first. We're not America's first, although we are American, and I'm proud of that. I'm a Christian first. If tomorrow there was a law passed that said I couldn't pray, would I pray? Absolutely, because I'm a Christian first. I'm, the laws are second to the laws of God. If the laws tell me something that I can't do, that Jesus Christ has called me to do, I do that first, because his kingdom is higher than any other kingdom on earth. And so what this made me think of is what's our first love? What's our first love? For many people, it isn't Jesus. I believe for most of the people in here, Jesus Christ is our first love. He, he was always meant to be our first love. But sometimes we can, we can substitute him for, again, to, to fit in. We can, America's our first love. America over everything. Uh, my spouse, my first love. My girlfriend in second grade, she was my first love. But that's not true. I didn't have a girlfriend in second grade. I wasn't that cool. Uh, but we can so easily put something as our first love. And whatever your first love is, the rest of your life will be affected by that. When Jesus Christ is your first love, your life looks different. When your spouse is your first love, it looks different than somebody whose first love is their nation. What you put as your first love, that thing that you always go back to, the thing that you remember, that thing that changes you, the thing that makes you act, the things that make you do something, what your first love is, is going to change how you act. It's going to change how you engage in the world, how you engage with people. And as Christians, our first love should be Christ. It should be Christ. He's, he's worth it. Last time I got to speak, I talked about, man, it costs something to be a Christian. It costs something. It's going to cost you. But he's worth it. He's worth it to be your first love. And I'm going to get into a little bit of why. So we've been in Colossians, and we're going to go to Colossians 3.1. I can't quite remember if, we've already, if someone's already read this and covered it, but I'm going to talk about it anyways. 
So, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on, thing above, on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When you read that, Paul's painting a picture. He's giving us an illustration. He's writing and he's saying, look, you remember Jesus when he was crucified? You were a part of that when you accept him. He paints that picture of that we were died, but then we were raised, just like Jesus. When we come and we submit ourselves to, to Jesus and we make him Lord of our lives, Jacob talked about the first week, God is not subject to the boundaries we are with space and time. When we, Paul is saying, when we become Christ, our spirit took part. We were, we were crucified, and we have been raised up with Christ. And that's really good news, that we are no longer subject to the patterns of this world, the sins of this world, the things that this world deems important, that part of us that longs to be connected finally gets an answer, an answer that goes beyond whatever answer you can find here on earth. It goes and it says, hey, you are a part. You were a part of Christ. And every single other brother and sister out there who has submitted themselves to Christ is also part of this. You become a family when you die. When you die to yourself. He's not talking about physically. You're not physically dying. Your spirit is dying. You're putting to death your old nature, that sin, that sin nature that we were all born with. And you are being raised with Christ and you become a part of the family. You become a part of something bigger than yourself. And I think that's awesome because that part in us that wants to be loved, that wants to be feel like it's belonging, it gets an answer. And that's amazing. We're no longer having to identify with all these different groups to find belonging. We identify with one group, and that's where true belonging, true love is cultivated. And so... Our sin nature, he says, he's talking about, we have to kill it. We have to put to death. Put to death our sin nature. Well, who knows that everyone was born with a sin nature. There was nobody born perfect other than Christ and Adam and Eve. But uh, everyone in here was born with sin. And we have to put that to death. And that is something that is difficult. Dying to yourself, not only dying to yourself, but being the one that kills yourself, in a sense, that's difficult. He's saying, you have to take this part of you, that part of you that's in your very nature, that part of you that wants to feel gratification, that part of you that longs to do the wrong thing, you have to put that to death. And that's not easy. That's not a one-time thing. Renew your mind daily, he talks about. You, you have to wake up every day. You have to be aware that you are putting this part of yourself to death. And so... Our sin nature, it leads to destruction. That's how you know when someone's living out their sin nature, they're not living according to what God has said. The fruit of that is death. The fruit of that is destruction. And it's weird. You would think that since we know that sin leads to death, that it would be easy to consciously just be like, no, I'm not going to sin. But why? There's some part of us that like, even though we know the outcome, that little bit of instant gratification, little bit of instant gratification can really take hold. It can really grab your heart. It can really lead you into things, even though you know you shouldn't do them, you do them anyways. 
And I think that's just, I was just sitting there at my kitchen table thinking about that last night, of why. Why when the Bible, when we believe the Bible and we know that the wages of sin are death, why do we struggle with it so much? Why are we so about that instant gratification? And I think that's partly due to the culture we live in today, that we can get everything on demand. We can pull out a smartphone, Google something, and be like, whoa, okay, sweet. We can pull up, watch YouTube when we're bored. We never have time, especially my generation. We have been raised in a time where, like, if we don't have something to do in 15 seconds, like, we are bored out of our minds. I mean, you see people stand in line to ride a ride. Maybe it's a 15-minute wait. You people stand in line to check out a book at a library. It's like a few seconds. And what they have, they have their phone out. They're constantly having something distract them. We're uncomfortable with our own thoughts. We're uncomfortable with being alone. We're uncomfortable with being subject to only our, our voice and Jesus' voice. And I think that's probably one of the causes of, man, why it's so easy to sin. Because we want that next feeling. We want that next feeling. If we're not having something engaging, we're not feeling something, it's scary. We, we want to feel something. But Jesus... His way, sometimes it's not that fast. When Jesus tells you to follow him, sometimes it's not, you don't get that instant gratification. A lot of times it's a prolonged thing. It's, it's marching towards something despite being tired, despite your feet hurting, despite getting worn out. It's going something that you know in the end is going to be worth it. And so in James, I'll have to flip James 1.13, I'm going to read something. It says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, upon first reading that, you might, I know I didn't, I had someone point it out to me, but James is, again, painting a picture here. He's painting a picture of that first half, God doesn't tempt you. Don't ever say, God tempted me to do this. The reason I'm in this mess is because God. God doesn't do that. God doesn't, God doesn't make you sin. He's saying that that evil desire in yourself is when you, tempt, you, you get into it, and you follow that desire of your heart, that unrenewed heart. And that desire, he's saying, he's painting a picture of, it can, when it's conceived, he's painting a picture of a, of a baby being conceived. It gives birth. Sorry, I need to flip back to that. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So that evil desire, when we follow it, it gives birth to sin. And what does sin do? Sin gives birth to death. And he's painting a picture, kind of a graphic picture, of a stillborn baby. He's saying, when we conceive something, when we conceive sin, when we follow that desire in our heart that leads to sin, sin never gives birth to life. It's like that waiting. It's like that waiting, I've, I nurtured this sin, and that's weird. We nurture sin. We give reasons for why we don't have to change, why we don't have to address it. And it grows. 
And when it finally does give birth, it's that disappointment of, man, that was death. This thing that I've been following, this thing that I've been pursuing, it gave birth to death. And sin never, never gives birth to life. And I think that's important to understand because, man, people don't know that. People think because it feels good in a moment, people people think because I'm sinning and I'm feeling good about myself, they think, man, that's life, right? That's what life is all about. Life is all about that feeling. Life is all about chasing that gratification. But man, when you don't have heaven's perspective on things, that the next two days of your life are nothing, they're just nothing. It's a glimpse. James also says, man, you're here one minute, you're gone the next. You are missed. Not saying that your life is insignificant, but in the overall perspective of what time is and eternity is, man, it's not, we're not here that long. When we are so caught up in what the next thing is and what that next feeling of gratification is, our perception has been shifted to what makes me happy. What can life give me? What makes me feel good? And if we're not careful, we think because we feel good, because we sin and we feel good, that that's life, that that is giving birth to happiness. But at the end, it leads to destruction. Life and happiness are not the same thing. And unfortunately, we live in a world that probably, that I hear a lot of people think, you know, as long as it makes me happy, I'm living my life. Happy, happy life. Good life. No. <laughs> That's, it might feel good in a season. But man, we've got to have eternity's perspective on things. We've got to realize that sin gives birth to death. Every single time. Every single time. And when we choose life, we give, when we choose not to sin, when we choose God's way, it gives birth to life. And we need to understand that. Next thing. So verse 5 in Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have been put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So, That's again, it's talking about putting to death that sin nature. Taking what once made us happy, what what once gave us life. Do you know to the unrenewed person, the unsaved person, I'm sure happiness seems like the best thing that you can experience in life. When you don't know that there's a God and there's an eternity waiting for you, man, whatever you get in this life, that makes sense. That makes sense to, I need to chase whatever's going to make me happy. And this is written to Christians, so it's not addressing that. It's addressing Christians. Christians, you ought to know better that this life is not the only thing here. This life is not all that there is. Christians, you need to know that there's an eternity waiting for you, and how you live this life will determine your eternity. You need to have a a perspective on things that's longer than five years. That's, That's a reach, too. Like, most people are like, what's next week? What's tomorrow? 
man, you, have, you need to have a perspective of, man, what am I doing for eternity? Because at the end of this life, guess what? I mean, that's, that's I always say, that's when real life starts. Is after you're done with this life, that's when real life starts. That's when you're there for eternity. Like, no sickness, no death. You live forever. That's, what's, that's when life really starts. And so why do we find it so easy? And this is me included. I'm, this message is directed at me. This message is saying, like, why? Why do we find it so easy to not make Jesus everything? Why do we find it so easy to make something else the satisfaction? Something else brings us satisfaction, satisfaction when it's always been Jesus. It's always supposed to have been Jesus. And so in verse 10, it says, uh, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and, dear, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as a members of one body, you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's powerful. I know it's kind of weird when someone's reading to you. It's hard to, a lot of times, at least for me, I have to read it myself. And if I'm just listening to someone read, I don't always get it. But when you read that, man, he's saying, when we are created in Christ and we are stepping into our new life, when we have been raised with him, there's things that happen. Humility happens. Love happens. Put on love, for it is, it binds all things together. He's painting that picture of, man, when we step into Christ, we belong. No one accepts Christ and doesn't belong there. When you accept Christ, you belong. You become a part of something. And he gives the illustration again of when Christ is the head, he is the head of the, of the body. And we become part of the body. We are submitted to him. He is the head. We are the body. And we're not alone in the body. Like, I am not, when I become a Christian, when you become a Christian, you are not everything on the body. When you become a body, just like a body of people, it's multiple people put together, acting as one, under lordship of Jesus Christ, who is the head. He directs us. He directs his body. And we become one. And he said, this is, I always love these because it frustrates me. Forgive the Lord. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Man, that's hard. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Did you know? I mean, honestly, we were disgusting to God. We were full of sin before we knew him. We were undesirable. We were broken. We were unlovable. And he forgave you. He looked at you and said, man, despite all this mess, 
I love you. I want to be with you. And then we get saved and we accept that. And he makes us beautiful. And then we turn around to someone who doesn't agree with us politically and we hate them. <laughs> Man, how hard is it to forgive when he says, Man, how much, how much, I, how, are you sure I have to forgive that many times? Like, that's a lot of times. And that's because forgiveness is a process. Like, I can say I forgive somebody, and then a day later, I'm starting to feel that unforgiveness again, and I need to forgive again. Forgiveness is not a one-time thing, especially for me. Like, the, I think in Proverbs or Psalms, it says, pride is the source of all contention. And sometimes it's easy to let that pride get there, let that pride do what it wants and say, no, this is justified. This person wronged me, and I am justified. I'm the victim here. Man, I have, I have a reason to not forgive them. But he's saying, forgive them. Dear Lord, do you not know what Christ forgave you of? Do you not know what you looked like to God? And yet he chose to forgive you anyways. He chose to make you a part of his body. He didn't just say that he chose you and accepts you. He made you a part of his body. He took you and became one with you. Man, how can you do that and not forgive your neighbor? How can you do that and hold grudges against one another? And sometimes I feel like it's, Paul is writing with like a little bit of a condescending sense. Like, are you an idiot? Are you dumb? How do you not get this? But it's true. I don't get it sometimes. Like, Jesus Christ, when he is over everything and you've become a part of him, man, forgive people. Do you really think you're that important that you get to have that you get to harbor unforgiveness? You really think that you are so big and bad that you get to justify that someone wronged you and say, "Nope, they wronged me. They're not going to be forgiven." God, just like the disciples, send fire on that town. Like, come on, people. We need to forgive one another. Jesus says they're going to know you by your love for each other. By your love for each other, love is binding. Love is what binds all things together. If we're harboring bitterness and we're harboring unforgiveness, when we can't forgive our brothers and sisters in church, the world's no different. They're not going to look at us and be like, I want that. I want, I want just what those Christians have. They have two different churches because they believe two different things that aren't even important. They have different denominations because they can't agree on anything. And we don't forgive them because they don't agree with mine and I don't agree with theirs. Christ is bigger than that. Christ is bigger than your denomination. Christ is bigger than what church you go to. Christ encompasses all. The least we can do is forgive someone who's wronged us. The least we can do is say, you know what? Man, I'm sorry that you felt that way. I'm sorry that you don't see that we don't see eye to eye. But man, I'm gonna forgive you because Christ forgave me of a debt I could not pay back. Christ forgave you of a debt you cannot pay back. No matter how much good you do in life, no matter how much help you give to somebody, no matter how much you donate to a charity, no matter how much you donate to a church, you can't pay back your debt. You never could. The only reason we have, it, we have been saved is because Christ paid it for us. The least we can do is forgive our brothers and sisters. And so... Christ is still Lord. Christ is still God. Above everything. Over my life. Over your life. 
over an unsaved person's life. He is Lord. They just don't know it yet. They just haven't recognized his lordship. We are called to submit to him. And so, what is the fruit in your life? How do we know that you're, how do we know that you believe? How do we know that you have faith in Jesus Christ? How do we know that? Am I just simply going to have to go on what you've told me? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay. Oh, you're a Christian. But your life looks exactly like everyone else's. Your life doesn't look renewed. And I'm going to get into James. And I've talked to a few people, uh, which is funny, because if you've read James, it can kind of be like a hit or a miss book for people. But the few people that I've said who really like James have been people who I'm like, that makes sense that you like James. James talks about Christian living, how we as Christians are called to live. And he says some hard things. He says some things that are hard to get. Maybe not hard to get, but they're definitely hard to implement in our life. And he talks about faith. But before I get there, what's the fruit of your life? James 1.26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. If anyone's religious, but they, they can't even keep a tight grasp on their tongue, they can't even stop themselves from cursing others, from speaking death to others, I'm not going to say it, but James will say it. Your religion is worthless. Who cares? Talk is cheap. Talk, you can say anything you want. I could say that I'm a millionaire, and I've got money in the bank. Now, is that true? I wish it was, but it's not. It's not true. And are you just supposed to take my word for it? No, I think that's what was going on, is that people were saying they were Christians, but their life looked no different. They had no fruit to show for it. And so, if you're just all talk, James is saying your religion, it's worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Well, when he says, you know, this is what God accepts as true religion, that's when I pay attention. What is what God accepts as true religion? What does God want? What makes my religion pure and true? He says this, to look after orphans and widows and their distresses and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's what true religion looks like. According to the word of God, true religion looks like helping those in need. It looks like going to the least of these. It looks like going to those who can't help themselves. Man, we have more than we could ever want in Christ. And many of us have more than we could ever need when it comes to worldly things. When it comes to money, we have excess. We have savings accounts. We have things that a lot of the world doesn't have. And we take that so for granted sometimes. Like, man, what can I get for myself? What can I store for myself? I need to make sure I have a safety net for this. I need to make sure that if this happens, I can afford it. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm guilty of this. I've grown up in a home that hammered this into me. You have to have this, and you have to have that, and you have to have this much money by the time you're 25. Christ did not say that. Christ didn't say that. Christ is, man, give it all. When he called to his disciples, one of the things that we often overlook, and I didn't even realize until probably this year, was they dropped their nets and they came. 
what, do net, what, is net, what are nets to them? That's their source of income. To those, to those disciples, their nets are their source of income. They left everything and said, he's worth it. And there's, I, I looked this, I heard this. In the United States, there are around 500,000 kids in the foster care system. 500,000, half a million. Sounds like a lot. Do you know roughly about how many churches are in the United States? About one million. 500,000 kids, one million churches. 500,000 individuals, one million churches made up of multiple people. That means if just one person out of every two churches, one person out of every two churches in the United States helped and was able to take care of a foster care, of a foster kid, the problem would be solved. Problem would be solved. Problem solved. Like, that's one reason, that's one of the biggest reasons you hear that abortion's okay is because do you really want to bring a kid into the world and have them go into the foster care system? Man, if that's the reasoning, let's fix it. Let's do something about it. Why are we so caught up in what we can get? Why are we so concerned about what I can do for myself? One person, I mean, that's like, think about that. One person out of every two churches. The average church in America is about 100 people. So one Christian or one churchgoer out of every 200 and that foster care system solved. I'm not telling you to go out and get a foster kid. Uh, I'm not saying that you have to do that or you're not saved. But I am saying, man, what are you doing? What are you doing to help people? What are you doing for those who can't take care of themselves? Yeah, that's great that you got to help your brother and help him move. Sure, that's awesome. I've done that many times. Uh, just because my brother can't decide where he wants to live. But man, that's awesome. But what have you done for someone who can't do anything for themselves? What have you done for that guy who can't afford to eat? So often we see people, especially in Durant, it's gotten worse. We see people on the side of the road and we're like, ah, they're just going to buy alcohol with whatever I give them. Who cares? Like, that is not what Jesus measured by. If that person got alcohol with the money you gave them, who cares? That's their choice. What Jesus is looking at is, did you help them? Did you look at them? Did you pray for them? Did you take time out of your day? To stop and talk. People, I mean, people are horrible sometimes. People spit at people like that. People curse people like that. People say, that person is worthless. That person, that you know, that, that image bearer of God is worthless. Why would I help him? Oh, man, have we lost the sense, that sense of wonder that Christ has paid for that person. Man, Christ wants them. Christ didn't come... Christ didn't come for the rich. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for those who can't help themselves. And when we become a part of his body, we do that. We help those who can't help themselves. We serve those in need. What's the fruit of your life? If at the end of your life you have millions of dollars and all this inheritance goes to your kid, kids, great. But what did you do while you were here? James talks about I mean, I wasn't going to get into this, but I feel like I'm led to. Like, James talks about the things that you have at the end of your life, all this wealth that you've built up for yourself, that's going to be used to you, that's going to be used to judge you. 
I'll go to it real quick. So, James 5. And I'm not against wealth. Absolutely not. Jesus has called us blessed. He wants to, I think he wants to give to us so that we can help others. He doesn't give to us so we can just satisfy our needs. He blesses us so that we can bless others, so that we can be a blessing to those around us. James Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. He's saying all the, not not every single person who has money, obviously not. He's saying the people who have harbored, the people that have saved in vain to save themselves. Listen, you have something coming for you that you might not think, that you might not want. Well, because the misery that is coming upon you, your wealth has rotted. And moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. And he goes on to say, when you're hoarding your wealth, when you're hoarding what God has given you, when you're hoarding that stuff and not helping others, man, at the end of the day, when you have, at the end of your life and you have all this stuff, what good was it if it didn't help anybody but yourself? He says that corrosion is going to testify against you. He says you're fattening yourself up like a calf to the slaughter. What we see as fat and good as a cow, like, yeah, that's a good cow. That's going to produce a lot of meat. That's a valuable cow. Who knows that it's still going to die? I mean, it's fattening itself up to death. He paints that. He says, that's what we're doing. When we're saving ourselves, when we're guaranteeing our security, you're fattening yourself up for the day of slaughter. When God looks at you and says, look at all you had. Look at all I gave you. And you did nothing but help yourself. You did nothing but help bring a name to yourself. And one of the things that I heard about that really struck me, and I'm still thinking about it, and what I'm going to say, I'm not necessarily sure is 100% correct, but it's something I've been thinking about, and I want to let you in at least on that thought process, is that I heard somebody say, when we see someone who rich who is rich, and they lived a good life. They lived a good life. And they have all this stuff to give in their inheritance when they die. Man, what we see, oh man, that person was blessed. That person had so much. They're so blessed. Paul, James isn't saying that. He's saying, oh man, do they know what they have coming? Yeah, you're, you want to leave a legacy. You want to save, and you want to give to your kids. I want to do that. I want to be able to give to my kids. But man, did you know there are people whose kids are dying today? You have grandkids that aren't even born yet. And you're saving for them, but you haven't been willing to help those people whose kids are dying today because they can't eat. Who have, I remember going, I went to Africa, and there are kids who literally have days to live because they don't have food. They have days to live because they don't have access to water. And I'm over here worrying about, okay, how can I save up enough to buy a new phone? How can I save up enough to get this and that? Just for my pleasure, just because I want it. And it turns, it changes you when you see someone who has nothing. Literally nothing. They have a dirt floor. They have nothing. And I'm so worried about giving to someone who's not even born yet. Man, how can I help those who are dying today? How can I help those who need something today? What is the fruit in my life? And so James 2.14 What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? That's a rhetorical question. Obviously not. Can such faith 
save a man if he has works but he has no deeds? Obviously not. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. When Jesus is over everything, when you say that you have faith in Jesus, but you have nothing to show for it, like I said, I, I talked about this on Wednesday with the youth. and I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say you don't have faith. I can't, I can't judge that. But I'm saying James will. James will say, yeah, you don't have faith. When your faith by itself, you can say you have faith. Anyone can say they have faith. Faith in something. When you can say you have faith, but there's nothing in your life to show that you have faith. It's dead. It's dead. Just like that baby, that conceived baby that was conceived in sin and sin gave birth to death. Faith apart from God, faith apart from works is dead. It gives birth to death. It doesn't do anything for anybody. When you have faith that doesn't do anything, that's not faith. He goes on to say, but someone will say to you, I, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. In other words, I don't even have to tell you I have faith. We shouldn't have to tell people that we're Christians. Let, I sink, let that sink in. We shouldn't have to tell people we are Christians. They should automatically know. They should be able to look at our lives and see the fruit that it's produced. The people that we have been able to help. The fruit, God's fruit. The fruit of the kingdom, not the fruit of the world. Not the whatever you can get from the world, but the fruit of the kingdom. That should be evident. Faith without that is dead. He goes on to say that you measure, you can have your faith, but the evidence is proof of your faith. You have to have the two. You cannot have faith without evidence. And if you have evidence, then you have faith. They are two. They're two sides of the same coin. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Great. You believe that there's one God. Even the demons believe that and shudder. I think that's like, I talked about this again on Wednesday. Like, man, if Mike's were a thing, he would have dropped it there. Good. You say that you believe God. You say that there's one God. That's not faith. You, you acknowledge as a God. Who cares? You know, even the demons acknowledge that there is a God. Even Satan's minions acknowledge that there is a God, that there is one God. And you know what's the difference between people who acknowledge that there's one God and a demon who acknowledges one God? The demons are at least scared. They shudder. <laughs> the demons at least acknowledge, yeah, there's one God and I'm terrified because I refuse to submit to him. Man, we don't even do that many times. We're just like, yeah, I believe this one, God. Great. And you don't even have that fear, that fear of God that brings you that fear that's based in love. Man, that should be like, that's when I think he dropped the mic. Like, that's a wake-up call. If I'm saying that I believe that there's one God, but I don't, even, I don't even do anything about it, that's what the demons do. That's, what, that's the only thing that's separating us. But the demons are at least scared of that. I, I'm just like, wow, that's... That's hard to hear sometimes. 
When your lives don't look like Jesus, there's a problem. There's a disconnect somewhere. When you say that you believe in Jesus, when Jesus is indeed over everything in your life, but yet your life looks nothing like his, there's a disconnect. I'm not saying that, I'm not going to say that you're unsaved. I'm not going to say that. I don't know. You might truly believe in Christ. But man, when your life looks nothing like his, there is something wrong. We are called to live like Jesus. Oh man. If you've ever read a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you see what Jesus did, you see the life he lived. You saw what he could do. He healed the sick. He walked on water. He brought people back to him. He saved you. He saved you from destruction. He cast demons out of people. When you see this guy, and the Western church has to beg you to come to church, we have to beg you to follow him. Oh, please, just pray. Please, if you just, hey, you see what this guy can do. Would you please follow him? Please. What is wrong with that picture? That we see who Jesus is. We see what he can do. The destruction he saved us from. And we're having to work up, work up enough willpower to follow him. What is wrong with that picture? Like, this guy did everything. He performed miracles. He, he cast demons out of people who no one talked to. Man, and we're having to convince ourselves that he's worth it. What in the world? What is, what is wrong with this picture? In the Bible, in Mark, it tells a story where people follow him for three days. A crowd of people followed him for three days without food. They saw who Jesus was, and they knew they wanted it. They knew that he had something that they were never going to get apart from him. He, said, he, he followed them. They, they followed him. A crowd of people, not like five people, a crowd of people followed Jesus wherever he went for three days without food. And it says he turns and he had compassion on them because he knew that they were going to have to walk three days back with no food. That's when he did his second miracle of performing uh, replication of food. And... But the point of that is they saw something. People in the Bible, they saw something. They saw that whatever they were doing, the sacrifices of the lambs that they were having to do to save themselves, that wasn't cutting it. They saw that this guy offered something that nothing else was going to. And we see that. We have the benefit of hindsight. Let's not overlook that. We know who Jesus is. We know that he is true. We know that what the Bible says he did, he did. And yet we're still having to, like, okay, I'll have to read my Bible five minutes today. Well, let's see. Check that off. Sweet. Now I can go back to watching TV. Man, I, I, I don't understand because I'm not saying this like as a condemning thing, I'm saying this to myself. I'm saying this to myself. Why can I know that Jesus did all of this stuff and yet I have to struggle to follow him sometimes? I have to struggle to choose him. I have to, oh gosh, I feel like I need to tell this person about Jesus, but I'm scared they're going to be mean to me. I'm scared they're going to say something I'm not going to like. and I'm, It's going to hurt my feelings. Ah! He's worth it. I mean, that person needs Jesus. That person needs Jesus just as much as you need Jesus. Like, think about that. Everyone on earth who you look at, who you have deemed unconscious, unconsciously, 
deems a little bit less than, a little bit maybe not as worthy. They need Jesus just as much as you need Jesus. I don't need Jesus any more than you need Jesus. That person, Joe Biden, Trump, they don't need Jesus any more than we need Jesus. They need Jesus the same we need, as we need Jesus. My goodness, we're not better than other people. We're not better just because we follow Jesus. We are called to love those. I'm a very mathematical thinker. Like I learn through patterns, I learn through numbers and finding patterns, which is, I like that. Uh, Jesus has made me that way, so I can, I can logically come to conclusions. But I'll tell you what, no amount of logic can bring me to the point of saying what Jesus has told me to do. No amount of logic can bring me to the point of, oh, okay, to be the first in his kingdom, I'm supposed to be the last here. That, that's not logical. I can't bring myself logically to that conclusion. That's a faith thing. That's a faith thing. That's when you have to use that thing inside of you, that faith, and act on that. That he has called us to do something. That he has called us to serve servants. He's called us to serve the undesirable. The undesirable. And man, there are a lot of undesirable people. There are a lot of people who get under my skin. I'm a natural introvert, so... I love sitting at home and being not around people. <laughs> Take that with, with what you will. Like, I, I get life and I feel energy. I get more energy from being by myself. And so when I'm around people, they can get on my nerves pretty easy. You might not know that. Uh, that's just a little part of me is that they can get on my nerves pretty easy. But man, I was called to serve them. I was called to love them. And when you choose to serve somebody, when you choose to pray for your enemies, you're not just doing it because Jesus told you to do it. It's not just like, oh yeah, this is good blessings. God sends rain on the wicked and the righteous. But it changes your perspective. When you start to pray for people, when you start to pray for people you don't like, when you start to serve people you don't like, man, it might change them, it might not. But guess what? It'll change you. It changes your perspective on them. And we're called to a world, we're called to be out there and to pray for our enemies. To serve those who we don't like, who don't like us. And so I'm going to try to wrap this up. My main takeaway is Jesus is over everything. And because of that, our lives ought to reflect that. Our, our lives ought to reflect that we have made Jesus everything. That he is the head and we are his body. We are subject to his will. We lay down what we want. We lay down our will. We lay down our desire to get rich. We lay down our desire to be, have this job. We lay down our desire to ha be married to this person, to have this many kids. We lay down our desires, not because Jesus doesn't want us to be satisfied or Jesus is mean. We lay it down because what he has is so much better than we could ever want. Anything we could conceive, he's got a better plan. He's, he's got us. Sometimes I don't know if we realize that Jesus is good. Like we can say God is good. Yeah, God is good all the time. And do we know like do we know that? Do we really trust that God is good? Do we really trust that when we step out on that faith ledge, when we step out and trust him that he's good, he's not going to let us down. Yeah, fear. Fear keeps us. The fear of the fear that God really isn't good keeps us from doing what we've been called to do. And so my encouragement to you 
Just trust Jesus. Trust him. He's good. Man, he has all authority. On heaven, in heaven, on earth, in hell, he has authority over it all. And when we get to follow him, when we choose to make him Lord, we move into that and we become a part of him. We get to share in that. We get to go out on earth, not in our own power, not in our own name. We get to share Jesus, not in our own name. In, in Connor's name, be healed. We don't get to do that. We get to say, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, that person that lives inside of me, that spirit that hovered over the waters before time began. Man, that guy, that spirit lives inside of me, and in his name, be healed. In his name, in his name, I declare you righteous. God calls people righteous when we are filled with his spirit. Man, we are brought out of death into life, and that is something to celebrate. So, last thing before I close is in James 4.17. It says, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. I think sometimes we think that sin is just when we go and do something we're told not to, that God has told us not to. Sin is just when I look at this girl lustfully, or sin is just when I uh, accidentally cuss or something like that. That's sin, when I'm doing something. But no, this is saying if we know what Jesus called us to do, when we know the good that Jesus called us to do and we refuse to do it, that is sin as well. Man, if we, hear, if we hear our shepherd's voice, we hear God's voice tell us to do something and we say, nope, 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 not going to do that. Nope, God, that's going to make me uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. That's sin just as well. That's the same sin that you had by cussing the other day or whatever. That's the same sin by you doing something. Inaction can be a sin just as well as an action. When God has told you to do it in the inaction, that's sin just as much as the action. And the reason I bring that up is because this verse can be a little comfortable. Is there ministry teams today? Okay, sweet. This verse can be a little uncomfortable. And it's one that can be easily struggled with. But James 5.17. I'm sorry, 4, I'm sorry, 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Yikes. Confess my sin? Tell someone what I did? Tell somebody what I struggled with? Absolutely not. I'm going to keep that to myself. I don't want someone to think they're better than me. How, oh, how could someone think they're better than me? I'm scared that if I tell someone that I struggle with, tell someone... I did something wrong. I'm scared that they're going to judge me. Man, you're in a safe place here in this church. Man, these are good people. If you tell someone you're struggling with something, they're not going to judge you. Man, we're here to pray for you. Maybe some. Maybe some. Man, and not just tell them for the sake of telling them. Let's not tell someone our sin just to tell them, hey, I did this the other day, just thought you should know. That's not going to do much good. You tell someone that you sin so that they can pray for you. And what happens as a result of that? That you may be healed. And we are called to live a righteous life. We are called to live a life that produces good fruit. We are called to act upon our faith. 
Well, when we're called to do that, let's put to death that sin. Let's put to death that thing we're struggling with. I know everyone, Paul, the Apostle Paul struggled with stuff. Like everyone in here struggles with something. And so as the ministry team comes up, I'm not going to tell you that you have to go tell them what you've done and every little thing that you've ever done wrong. But I'm saying, man, if you want to take that next step in overcoming it, if you want to take that next step to being set free, I ask you to consider coming up and asking for prayer. Not so that they can know what you did, but so that they can hold you accountable, so that they can ask you and pray, that they can pray to God that you be set free. Man, we were not, we were not created to be held down by sin our whole lives. We are not created to struggle in silence, to struggle with ourselves, to struggle with what we do by ourselves. Man, we are a part of a body, hallelujah. We are a part of more than just ourselves. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to end in prayer. Jesus, thank you that you are everything, God. Thank you for who you are, that you've called us to be a part of yourself. We were crucified with you, that we've been crucified with Christ. And because we were crucified with him, we also got to be a part of him his resurrection. God, you've called us from death into life. You've called us to make a difference on earth. So I thank you, God. I thank you for every single individual in here. Whether they've made you Lord or not, Jesus, I pray that you start moving in their hearts. If they haven't made you Lord of their life, God, I pray that you start touching them that you start moving in them, that you show them that you're worth it, that you show them that there's so much more to life than what you can do for yourself. And if everyone else in here who does know God, thank you that you have made yourself over everything. God, help us make you Lord of our lives. Help us submit to you. thank you that this church produces good fruit. God, thank you that this church has a reputation where someone doesn't have, they don't have to ask if God's there. They know by what we've done. They know by what this church has done, what it's done for the community, what it's done for individuals. Father, and I ask that every single person in this church has that same story, that they don't, people don't have to ask if they're saved, God. That people are going to know that the congregants of this church are saved by what they've done, by what, who they've helped. And so I thank you, Jesus, for being so beautiful. God, that you've called us to be beautiful. That you've taken us from our dirtiness. That, that part of us that was so unlovable, that hated you. God, that part of you that, God, that part of us that loves sin and hates you. Thank you that you saw that and despite that, you transformed us. Thank you that we get to go and share that word with people around us. God, there's a lot of people in the world who need to hear the good news. Man, that they aren't subject. They aren't subject to their own will, their own desires. But man, we get to be saved. Father, thank you for right now 
setting up opportunities in this coming week that the people here, I included, that we're going to get to meet people and share the gospel with them because they need you. They need you just as much as we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would like to come up for prayer, you guys are more than welcome to come up for prayer. Uh, I recommend it. Um, we're really trying to get a, a flow of, or what's the word I'm looking for? We're really trying to establish that, man, coming up here for prayer is not a bad thing. Coming up for prayer doesn't mean that something is wrong with you. Man, Micah talked about this. When prayer is your last resort, uh, you did it wrong. Prayer should be your first resort. Like, let's not wait until you have, you, you have prayer is your only option. Like, let's come up and get prayer before any of that happens. So other than that, have a good rest of your Sunday. Be blessed. Oh my.